Welcome to Crump Insights, exploring timely life insurance and retirement planning topics for today's forward-thinking financial professionals. In this episode, a timely topic, estate planning, what the new presidential administration's tax proposals could mean for your clients. I'm Brian Bushlack, your host for this series and an active life insurance producer. Joining us, Michael LaMoya, Senior Vice President, Advanced Sales for Crump Life Insurance Services. Well, Michael, thanks for joining us. Let's start with a high-level overview of what the current proposals are regarding taxes. What's going on? Well, first off, thanks for having me. Yeah, so that's a great question. In fact, um, obviously, there's a lot of comments about what's being thrown out there. And more importantly, what does it mean to the individuals at the end of the day? So probably the best place to start is because we've been getting news about tax proposals. And, And the operative word here is they're all still proposals. We don't have anything hard. There is no law in keeping in mind until it's actually put into law. These are just discussion points, but there was a point way back when we had at that time, the running for president and at that time proposed candidate Biden on what was going to be the tax proposals to support his agenda. Well, obviously now we have President Biden and President Biden since that time has released uh, a number of different items, including what we refer to as the green book. Those proposals just for the audience perspective those are what we call starting points in Washington. We almost call them test balloons. So the reason the rationale I make that comment is, is these are the things in a perfect world that could happen and would happen, knowing and understanding that there's an agenda of items that want to get done. And at the end of the day, they have to be paid for somehow. So the tax proposals we have at a high level include things like changes to capital gain rates. Death could be a triggering event for cap gains and embedded gains. So that's a, that's a major change from where we've been before. Taxation of C corporations could change. International tax could change. Individual top rates could change. So there's a lot of different things that were there that triggered a lot of conversation. Now, what I wanna also say is that there's also been a number of senators' proposals, Bernie Sanders, Chris Van Hollen, for example, even uh, Elizabeth Warren, have presented certain wealth transfer tax changes. And they've been wide in range where it would, you know, Elizabeth Warren's was, hey, we're just going to create a wealth tax. Reality is we don't think that'll come about, but but it was a starting point. And back to my comment, it's a test balloon. Bernie Sanders released, we call it the Bernie Bill, which for all intents and purposes was going to change the exemption rates and change dynasty trust planning and grantor trust and just change the way we do estate planning in general. And then Chris Van Hollen's bill came around, which was, hey, there's going to be immediate income tax recognition. We'll get into it a little bit more, but I think the interesting part of this dialogue is two two parts. One, what are the proposals? And two, which is really what I think a lot of listeners need to be paying attention to, is when are they effective? And why is that important? Because there's this wide swath right now from uh, next year to date of enactment to President Biden's proposals. Theoretically, if you read the tea leaves, actually would have been April to of this year, those changes would have been effective to Chris Van Hollen's bill, which was January of uh, of this year. 
So the proposals are going to be wide. I think what ends up happening in D.C., like anything else, you start with a very wide net and you start narrowing it down one of two ways. One is what the voters are comfortable with. And then two, candidly, is what your your overall pay for needs are, i.e. if you've got a major a major pay for what's the easiest way candidly to get there so you know these proposals are going to be dramatic they're going to be impactful and then more importantly they're going to be a change and they're going to be a change from where people are right now this year and where we've been in the past couple of years yeah it's interesting in the advisor world there's been a lot going on in the world in general right with covid and so i guess conventional wisdom was that hey, they're so busy dealing with COVID and all this other stuff that they probably won't get to all this stuff until another you know year or so. Well, when they do, then <laughs> they oftentimes make it retroactive, as you talked about, right? So, you know, how likely is this that, you know, they end up passing several major changes and say, oh, by the way, this is retroactive to January 1, 2021. It sounds like that's a real possibility here. So the old rule here, and obviously we're doing this, and and the answer is always depends. You know, that's that technical answer as lawyers we learned years ago. Yeah. Was the, you know, the answer it depends because things could be retroactive. The first question I always get about retroactivity is, is it possible? And to be very clear, yes, it's possible. And maybe even more so on the income tax side. I do remind people there was a retroactivity for the estate tax ironically under the Clinton administration where uh, the Senate at that time was a 50-50 split and Al Gore was the breaking vote. So so that was the unique set of facts in that situation. But from an income tax side, um, it could happen. It definitely could happen. And it does it for two different reasons. One, because of an income tax situation, you can manage it a little differently uh, than you would from a, a given estate tax side. Because an income tax side, you can say a specific date, gift on a tax side, the rules as of December 31 basically are, are the rules that will apply just the way the code is written. So that gets a little bit messier uh, than you would from an income tax side. So yeah, the, the, the conversation is, is retroactive a possibility? Yes. And retroactive is also a backstop, by the way, for, for Congress to say, we're going to put certain things in place and versus letting, shall we say, the cat out of the bag here. It allows them to capture what they want to do from a tax planning side without everybody trying to react to it prior to and, and candidly avoiding the taxes or at least minimizing the taxes that budgetarily the, the, you know, the Congress needed as they put this math together. Now, I will make one comment, though, just from a tax planning side, more specifically for, for the audience. There are certain things from an income tax side, even if things are retroactive, that we can undo from an income tax side. And from a gift and estate tax side, we are already planning everything as an idea that we are going to have an ability of what I call undo and redo. So every conversation discussion that, that we're having is about doing certain things that have backstops in there. So wherever the rules may go, there's an opportunity to take advantage of either the current rules and or a change in the situation that's not going to be as impactful for the clients just because of the fact that they're putting things in place today. So, but yeah, retroactivity is an interesting dialogue and it will be something that I think 
people are going to have to pay attention to. But my one sub comment is, and I hate to say this, I think too many people are saying we're going to wait and figure out what we're going to do from planning. And I think candidly, that's the worst thing possible. So even though things could be retro, just keep in mind, planning still is much more effective. We can do things if we need to undo. And I, I make the comment, everything we do nowadays is, this is with an undo and a redo button. So just keep that in mind as we continue this dialogue about proposals and changes and more specifically, what could impact the client not doing the planning is probably the worst part. So, Yeah, that's a great way to frame it. And I know you don't have a crystal ball, but you have been reading the tea leaves here for, what, 25 plus years. So if you look at the trial balloons that are being floated, and there's several, what do you feel like is the most likely balloon to float here, right? I mean, which direction do you think they're leaning? I mean, obviously, it's going to swing to a much higher tax rate. That's just the climate of the entire country right now. But if you had to, you know, give us a guess, what's your gut feeling here? Yeah, and guess is, a, is an operative word. Those have heard me talk before. There's two things that run in that pushes DC, votes and revenue. So votes and revenue. And there's that balancing act. So my comments generally focused on how do you create revenue, i.e. especially with the proposals that have been submitted. So we had infrastructure one bill come through. Now we're focused on and we got the news, including the budget blueprint had been approved for $3.5 trillion. And yes, trillion is a big number. How do you start paying for that? How do you start really getting there? So to answer your question with the tea leaves, the easiest things that they start with are the ones that generate the biggest numbers. So right now, the corporate side, the corporate is really going to be a major factor. And why I bring that up is because until they figure some of these big numbers out, they can't really start figuring the other things out, i.e. the estate tax rates or if there's a cap gain at death, things of that nature. But Assuming that they do figure out, and there's some assumptions that I think we're all working with, perhaps 25% on the corporate rates and where things may settle. Um, honestly, businesses have said that they're comfortable with that. I think the, kind of the assumptions built into the markets are there. That kind of gives us a baseline. And the baseline there is it gives us also an idea of how big the infrastructure bill two could be, even though it's 3.5. I think the, um, the assumption behind the scenes is that'll be a as, as a final deal, much less than that. So back to the tea leaf conversation and what I think could happen, um, and specifically in a couple of different areas, you're going to see things from the income tax side, they'll continue to change. 199 cap A deductions are probably going to be a hot item, generates a lot of revenue, and that'll be more impactful because you already have a set of rules already built in for that at 400,000 plus. The cap and gain, although there's a desire to go to ordinary income, Uh, There's study after study showing that that's probably not an effective way because people will just either not recognize it, hence why the proposal from the Biden administration was to add the cap gain at death. Because absent that, you would have revenue loser of $30 a year. You need a revenue raiser. So if I was put on the spot and and said, hey, where are we going to end up? higher cap gain rates, higher income tax rates for the top bracket with cap gains, maybe, you know, definitely not to maybe the ordinary income rate. The gift and estate tax side, more likely not if I had to guess, it's a lot easier to deal with that with a rate change 
and an exemption change, i.e. back to the 5 million plus indexing, and then move the rate to 45, 50, 55, somewhere in that neighborhood, or at least have a tier system based on net worth. And then put things in kind of a backstop. The backstop being eliminate things like discounting, whether it be legislatively or regulatorily. For those on the listening, we all remember the, you know, 2704 rules, which was a regulatory action to change discounting. Well, Congress can do this and they will more likely would like to do this because they can get the revenue scoring on the bill. They do it uh, legislatively. Things like grants will probably be altered. Things like grantor trust, I think still going to be a very interesting twist. And there is a real conversation about trying to, um, to change the method we do for, for dynasty planning. If you ask the pundits and you really start narrowing down things, maybe this is the alternative question of what maybe not happening. Uh, we don't think Social Security, there was a whole bunch of dialogue about changing Social Security tax. I don't think that's going to happen because you can't do that under reconciliation. And I didn't mention this, but keeping in mind infrastructure too has been made very clear. This entire process will be done on a party line vote, 50 plus uh, obviously uh, Vice President Harris deciding vote under the reconciliation process. That's why we got the budget blueprint through. But assuming that is the case there, the things that probably can't happen is national security. And more likely than not, this idea of cap gain and death is just so dramatically different and is going to require so much, I call regulations, explaining how it's going to work and how and why it's going to work and the impact to the farmers. And back to my comment about voters, even though it could raise revenue, it's going to be a major impact on the voters because the current proposal will be anything over a million dollars. Even though there's exemptions, we weren't quite clear for farms and businesses, the reality there is it's still a major change that from a legislative side, it's much easier to change two things in the code, which right now currently says the estate tax exemption and sunsets at the end of 2025. It would be really easy to say it changes the sunset at the end of 2021. The rate goes to 55 or 50 or 45. And now all of a sudden you've written a completely impactful revenue number with two changes and then keeping in mind the other thing. So we're tracking it. We're believing right now the exemptions are changing. We are having that dialogue with clients. And I know as I have dialogue with every lawyer who's doing the drafting, they are overwhelmed with a common belief that that's also going to be something that they're going to be paying attention to. So in a long-winded version of your question, things are still unsettled, but some constants are going to be there that the taxes obviously for certain wealthy individuals are going to go up. And then for the estate tax side, it's going to go up. Now, one comment I do want to make, I think this is important because there's a lot of dialogue and taxes going up. Remember I mentioned revenue and votes. Revenue is generated not only from the tax rates, but also tax collection. So those listening are going to continue to hear more and more about IRS enforcement. IRS support. Elizabeth Warren, in fact, just continues to release additional items. In fact, for those who operate in the, in the high net worth space, we've already commented that the it's technically called the wealth squad inside the IRS's, shall we say, the band got back together and they're already knocking on doors. And what I mean by that is there's definitely a high level of scrutiny being presented by the IRS questioning transactions. 
So why is that important? So even though we're talking about tax rules and back to our earlier comment about retroactivity, you can create an enforcement level and raise revenue without changing the tax laws. So an indirect, what I'm gonna refer to an indirect uh, way to make something impactful without having to worry about it through the, through the actual congressional process. So we are seeing that we're definitely making sure that people are doing their filings, making sure people are going to get the statute of limitations running, keeping in mind that people do this year from a gift side, gift tax returns aren't due until next year. Your statute of limitations don't start until that point if, if they've been adequately disclosed. So meaning even though you file a gift tax return does not start your statute of limitation unless you meet all the other rules. And why is that important? Because there is a real pressure if there's enforced IRS support that this thing that we're doing from a planning side will continue to impact clients many, 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 many years forward. So, so tea leaves are going to be interesting. And for some of those that say tea leaves are too complicated, we have coffee. <laughs> there's a reason why sometimes because you got to grind coffee versus just brew the tea. And we're going to see that probably in the Washington process. Yeah, you know, we have so many clients that have real estate as a significant portion of their portfolio. Have you heard anything on the 1031? Because, you know, they float out the elimination of the 1031, you know, tax-free exchange, and that sends shivers through clients and anybody in the real estate industry. Do you think that'll factor in here? So real quick before I address that, I always get the question, if they make changes to 1031, Will that impact things like 1035, which is the exchange of life insurance? So yes. just to be clear, any comment I'm going to make has nothing to do with exchanges of life insurance. The different code section, there's been no no comment or question behind the scenes about changing that. Now, back to your comment at 1031, there was proposals to change and limit the deferral options under 1031 to 500000 a year per taxpayer, per year per taxpayer. So it's important. One comment I guess I've made when you actually look back to the revenue generation from that, and to your point, there are so many owners of real estate, including members of Congress, that it would be majorly impactful to them. And as a result, it has always been shown historically that members of Congress don't always like all the tax rules, especially if they impact them themselves. Now, not to say they don't have a view for their voters, but let's be honest, there are moments, including as we saw the 199 Cafe negotiation last time, they got altered last second to include real estate, the 2.5% real estate. So that was because there was a couple senators, one specifically without naming names, that that, that was going to significantly impact, but now we'll see. So the idea of the 1031s changing would be a dramatic change. There's been an observation to back to your comment about COVID that even if it was to change, there is a real possibility that rule could possibly delay, be delayed. So i.e., since there's such a concern about real estate, especially on the commercial side right now, we've got um, even, even the residential side with the eviction moratorium play back and forth, state level, federal level, there is still going to be an impact to real estate, whether it be next year or the year after, that changing the rule of 1031 could even further impact that. 
So that being said, even though there's dialogue on it, the probability of it changing could be small. And if it did change, it could be maybe phased in. And when you have things phased in, you always have a change, a possibility of it changing again under certain things in the future. Just in, in, as we go through this, keep in mind 1031s did change under the 2017 Tax Act to limit it just to real property. So could it change again? Yeah, it's always been in there as an item of conversation, discussion. Is it a method people say and view as being a, um, a talking point of wealth being transferred? Yes. In reality, is it? Maybe not. It's still, there's still basis numbers that need to be there. But the reality is it'll be discussed. But I think when the push actually comes to shove, I don't know other than the Biden Green Book will we see that really being floated again? So more to come. I think we'll have, uh, back to my comment, that will be one of those test balloons, just like we got the 199 Cap A test balloon a couple of weeks ago. We'll get a test balloon if it's even on their radar. But I don't know where it'll go and how it'll go there. And if it goes there, how long it'll stay. So. Now, you and I could talk for hours, and we often do, about advanced planning strategies, but... <laughs> I want to talk about that. So, you know, trying to get ahead of this, you say we're doing everything with, you know, a redo or an undo button. Maybe give us some guidance here. And I know each case, each client, each scenario is different. But generally speaking, what techniques, what tactics, what ideas should advisors be thinking about at this time and their clients? Because we need to get out in front of it. No, that's exactly correct. And I can't stress that enough. And for two reasons. One, if the rules are going to change and clients want to do the planning, um, back to an earlier comment, I, I just, I made phone calls around to a bunch of lawyers to do planning for, for somebody we're working with and they're just booked. I finally had to ask a favor of somebody to help doing the documents. It's just, they're already overwhelmed. So to answer your question, the planning techniques we are trying to put in now include um, if there is gift capacity. I mean, right now we have a very high number, 11.7 per person, that we can give assets away. Now, that's not just 11.7 of cash. That includes discounted assets, i.e. an asset, if it is discounted, could be worth more than 11.7, could be 15 million, could be 18 million, whatever that final number is based upon fair market value. So we are moving those assets out of the estate, but the problem is we don't know two things, what the rules will be and if the client's gonna need it. So things like transferring to trust and most commonly more for them a spousal lifetime access trust are an option, but now we may even put options in that trust that says, hey, if the rules change, this trust qualifies for marital deduction. We call them, you know, inter vivos Q-tip trusts. Why is that important? Well, we don't have to make that determination until next year, until we have to file our tax returns. And by that time, we will have an idea what will happen. That's powerful for two reasons. One, it changes the dynamic for gift tax purposes, but also from an income tax side, because all the income tax assumptions, even if they're retroactive, i.e. the Van Hollen bill, the exception would have been to a U.S. citizen spouse. So just keep that in mind. The other things we're doing is just back to my comment about discounting. We are for sure, sure taking assets and moving them subject to a valuation discount. 
However, any move should be subject to also a, a defined value provision, uh, shall we say, a readjustment clause. Meaning, and there's a famous case called Wandry v. Commissioner, and you and I actually talked about that years ago when, when it just came down and how impactful that was. It says if I'm going to move $10 million, I'm move $10 million as finally determined by the IRS. So the reason why I say that is if they change the rules and also my comment about the IRS's enforcement, and we have a provision that says absent whatever finally is determined by the IRS, the net net at the end of the day is they're still not going to be a gift tax. Okay, so so things like slats, things like defined value clauses, things like moving money with an idea and an expectation that generally there's going to be some, shall I say, grandfathering is put into the place. And then the last component of it is we've got AFR so low, uh, the applicable federal rate. So the applicable federal rate obviously changes every month. Just for the for the listeners, keep in mind for those who don't track it, like you know, of course. You and I know I'm a geek, so I track a lot of different things. That gets published in the middle of the month. And the reason why that's important is because it allows us to plan for next month. Well, that's a historic close. So that means that now I can lend assets to trust and make me, if I need to, unblend it, i.e. make it a completed gift by year end, and or I just keep it alone going forward. Again, not knowing where the rules are, it gives us total flexibility to do things today and figure it out on December 31. As I made a comment to somebody that day, hey, it's a lot easier tearing up a note and making a gift December 31 than trying to make the gift on December 31 itself of the actual asset. So that would be another huge thing. So those combination of things like spousal lifetime access trust, things like Q-tip elections, i.e. qualifying for marital reduction, things like discounting, things like AFR, all of those are being put in place from a wealth transfer side with one other eye towards making sure we're paying attention to the income tax side and that income tax side's all there. The last component I can't stress it enough is the conversation integration of things like liquidity. At the end of the day, there could be a tax, would be a tax, whether it be an income tax, a state tax, whatever it is, there's gonna be a need for liquidity and things like ideas like life insurance, which to some people are, hey, what does that all mean? We don't like life insurance. Wealthy people need cash. And life insurance in that set of facts is a factor of creating cash. So the last component we're fitting in is we're making the transfers and we're making sure at the end of the day, regardless of wherever the rules are going to be, there's liquidity. And that liquidity coming from the form of either cash on hand or cash being created from things like life insurances or other assets. Well, I have a feeling that... uh... We'll be having you back on this podcast later in the year as these things develop. To be continued, Michael Amoya, thank you for joining us. We appreciate your insight. Thanks for having the opportunity. And as always, great catching up. Crump Life Insurance Services, a leading third-party distributor and service provider of insurance and retirement products, is part of Truist Insurance Holdings Incorporated, the seventh largest insurance broker in the world. Crump supports the distribution of life insurance, annuities, long-term care, linked benefits, disability, and health products with the industry's premier sales and back office support and technology services. Marketing under the following brands, Crump, Truist Life Insurance Services, Risk Rider, TELUS, and Time. Source, Business Insurance Magazine using 2019 brokerage revenue generated, 2020 issue. 
for financial professional use only. Not intended for use in solicitation of sales to the public. Not intended to recommend the use of any product or strategy for any particular client or class of clients. For use with non-registered products only. Crump operates under the license of Crump Life Insurance Services Incorporated. Arkansas license number 100103477. Products and programs offered through Crump are not approved for use in all states. Copyright 2021, Crump Life Insurance Services Incorporated.